Hey everybody, Jimmy Smith on today's Unlocking the Cage podcast. Tyson Chartier joins us to preview the main event of Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett at UFC Austin. We also talk about Vince McMahon stepping down as CEO of the WWE. What is the next step? Also, MMA coach Mark Henry to talk about the retirement of Zabit Magomed Sharapov. A very special guest from the New England cartel. He is the head coach there, Tyson at Chartier. How are you doing, man? I'm not. I'm doing bad. Not sorry. Not doing bad, man. I'm worried about these bugs out here in Texas. I'm in the backyard, and uh, we got bugs everywhere. Sometimes dodge tarantula hawks and everything. So it's a constant problem, dude. It's a constant problem. What are you gonna do, man? (laughs) It's tough. It's tough. So, um, getting your man uh, Calvin Cater ready for this fight. Let's take a little step back and talk about his last one um, against Giga Chikadze, a virtuoso performance by him against a great striker coming off the loss he had against Max Holloway. What was prep like that, not just uh, for that for that fight, like not just physically but mentally, the bounce-back kind of fight? How was training for that, man? Training was great. You know, I, I think, you know, the year that he had off obviously paid dividends, and, you know, the first half of that year, a lot of it was just, you know, keeping Calvin, you know, from overtraining and, and wanting to get back too early. And then once we once we got him back, everybody's talking about, oh, is he is his confidence shook and this and that. And Calvin's confidence was not shook one bit from the max fight. He was just mad that he underperformed that night. And he went against the better guy who performed better that night. So the confidence was always there. Now it was just a matter of preparing to fight someone with a skill set like he gets. It's hard to, you know, mimic that length at the 45 division, someone with that extensive uh, kickboxing background and he had a lot of hype too so um it was fun getting ready for that one you know he had a chip on his shoulder and we wanted to come out and and you know kind of derail the the hype train so to speak is he the kind of guy who likes to have a chip on his shoulder when he fights yeah calvin puts chips there like every every fight he'll figure out a reason to be mad or upset about something and then it usually makes him perform better um yeah he likes being the underdog you know so this one's a little different being a favorite but he'll figure out a way to put, put stack the chips up even more. <laughs> he'll do the he'll do the Michael Jordan, right? He always somehow takes something personally, right? That's kind of his thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe today, what will happen in uh, a couple hours here at the face-off? Maybe he'll look at him the wrong way, and that'll be all he needs. <laughs> so, uh, what are your thoughts on on Josh Emmett as an opponent? What was the emphasis uh, in camp getting ready for this guy? Really, you know, Emmett's a. Uh, you know, he just hits hard and he's athletic and, you know, he comes like a pocket-sized, you know, little hurricane. Like, he just he's, he's punches from, from low, but he's loopy. He's explosive. He does hit hard. Um, he's pretty durable himself and he's experienced and he comes from, a, you know, a really good gym. So, you got to respect that. And then the thing that, you know, the elephant in the room is that he also, also was a college wrestler. So, you know, you got to be wary of that too, which I think helped set up a lot of his power shots because, you know, you could be a little bit worried about the wrestling, respect that too much, and then you're getting hit with something over the top. So, you know, kind of a double-edged sword there. So uh, getting ready for him, though, it was fun, man. You know, we got to make a lot of overhands, move around a lot, you know, work on footwork. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun getting ready for this one. I think is a seven-week camp coming off of, uh, you know, started out in Vegas and we finished back home, and then we got out here in Austin a week early. And it's been good seeing the evolution of Calvin – you know, going against someone with this style and seeing how he's making some adjustments and, you know, building some new triggers to combat, you know, some of the stuff Josh brings to the table. 
So what, what I'm curious about is the inactivity over the last few years for Josh Emmett. He's had some injuries. He's had some difficulties. Uh, I recently said, uh, breaking down this fight and talking about it, he's fought once in 2021, once in 2020, twice in 2019, once in 2018. Since 2017, he just hasn't been very active. How do you, as a coach, kind of take advantage of, uh, of that? What are some of the difficulties for a fighter who who hasn't been in the octagon that much? I mean, wh- what are the, the what's the downside to the activity level of Josh Emmett over the last few years? I mean, you know, the downside is that he's not, not as active, but, you know, that you can spin that into a positive too because now it's like, all right, we don't have as much current video to break down. You know, we didn't get to see the evolutions from fight to fight. So you're kind of guessing, has he, has he been in the lab doing a lot of new things? Has he going to come out with some new tricks? Is, uh, you know, and then the, the other thing, part of that is, like, oh, he's well-rested. He's like, not going to have a lot of miles on him right now because he's, you know, he's been training smart in the gym, not taking a lot of beatings in fights. And, you know, so you can spin it either way. But I really, you know, it's hard to get momentum when you're not active, you know, and I yeah. think he's at a point here where, you know, he, he had a couple injuries, I think, He's looking to build that momentum right now. He had a you know win against Ige. He's finally getting another quick you know quick turnaround for him, and um, looking to parlay that into you know a big win over Calvin. But I think uh, you know Calvin had that one year layoff. But other than that, he's been very busy in the UFC. You know I always say is like before the Max fight, we were in camp since we got in the UFC. We were pretty much in camp the whole time, and then the Max fight finally happened. We got a year off, and uh, we were finally able to get back in the gym and and. and you know, sharpen some, actually add some new weapons and, and make the current weapon sharper. So, uh, yeah, time off can be really, really valuable as well. Speaking of Tyson Chartier from the uh, New England Cartel, of course, coach of Calvin Cater. Um, the, the weapons for Calvin, is he one of those guys, as you said, you're trying to always not just sharpen the weapons you have, but add new weapons. Is he always open to that kind of thing? We see a lot of fighters, man, with the number of fighters Calvin has, and this is what, his 28th fight. Uh, I'm sorry, 29th coming into this one. Um, is it still easy to teach the, the veteran dog new tricks? It's always easy to teach these guys new tricks because they want to just get better. You know, they're trying to always develop new things. We're bringing a new coach. Like, I brought in Jake Manini as the Muay Thai coach 10 months before the, the Jeremy Stevens fight. And, and the whole reason I said, listen, Calvin doesn't really have, like, elbow triggers from, you know, the Muay Thai wrestling range. Like, he's going to box or he's going to wrestle. I mean, we, we don't have elbow triggers. We say throw an elbow, throw an elbow, but it's not coming out in a fight naturally. We right. brought Jake Manini in, and 10 months later, he gets a knockout like that over Jeremy Stevens. And then you look... You know, what, a year and a half after that, look at the Giga fight. You know, he goes out and knocks, knocks, you know, knocks Giga around the, around the cage for five rounds with, with elbows from everywhere, with spinning elbows. You know, um, he's showing evolution there. And then I think you see, you know, probably two years ago, he wasn't checking leg kicks. Now he's really good at checking leg kicks. He's throwing kicks of his own. You know, um, these guys are always learning new stuff. And, we, you know, we, when we bring in the best coaches like we do, you know, these guys are going to constantly keep adding to the uh, to the tool belt, and uh, I think that's really what sets sets them apart from some other other fighters that stay stagnant. What are your thoughts about momentum? We just talked about Josh Emmett's kind of lack of momentum just because, you know, he's on a four-fight win streak, but he hasn't been that active over the last couple years. While Calvin Cater has been fighting and fighting and fighting and really getting his name out there and really having impressive performances, uh, what are your thoughts about the momentum of this fight, right? Where do you think this uh, win puts Calvin Cater should he come out on top? 
You know, I mean, one could argue that we win the fight and we should get the next title shot. It's, uh, you know, whoever wins out of Max and, and Volk in, in July. So I think we could argue that, you know, out of Ortega and Yair, that that'd be one win, you know, in a row. We'd have two wins in a row with good body of work, good resume. But, you know, I think there's a lot of politics that goes into that and a lot of things outside of our control. So we try not to really focus on that. And all that we can really can control is performing on Saturday night against Josh Emmett. And then whatever happens after that is what happens. You know, we, it'd be a waste of energy to even focus on it because we have no control over it. Um, the, the, the 145-pound division, of course, I'm talking to Ty, Tyson Chartier, the, uh, the head coach of the New England cartel, Calvin Cater's head coach. Uh, it's a division in flux right now, right? Because you have Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky. You have the trilogy fight. Uh, Volkanovsky has talked about going up to 55. Should he vanquish Max Holloway? He might go up to 55. We don't really know what's going on with that. Is it difficult... Um, as a coach or to kind of keep your fighters from not thinking about the division because it's so up in the air, you don't know what's going to happen. As you said, you want to focus on what you can focus on, but it's hard not to think about the next step. How does that? How do you deal with that in camp, man? Is it just staying away from it and worrying about the next guy? Honestly, it, it, for our team, it's not that hard because it's just every, every, every turn we make, it's always just focus on what you can control. And as long as you just do that at the little things, like, we're at a session. Let's not worry about the next one. We got to focus on this session, and the next session to focus on that session. Like we literally do, just we preach it. It's like, you know, all we do is preach focus on what you can control. Because if if you can figure out how to do that, and you're not stressed about all these things that like aren't going to help you win. You know, worrying about what's after Josh Emmett isn't going to help us beat Josh Emmett. You know, if anything, it's going to give us a, a worse chance of beating Josh Emmett. So. I think as long as you just focus on what's in front of you, keep winning. Like Kavanaugh will say, they just can't deny you. Eventually, we'll get the title shot, but, you know, it's not up to us when it happens. And fortunately, with guys like Calvin and Rob, like, I don't have to, like, hammer that home. They, they preach it themselves. They live it. So, it's, uh, I'm very fortunate to coach guys with the mentality um, that they have. And um, it makes things a lot easier for me. Uh, the one factor here that everybody talks about when breaking this fight down, I'm going to talk about the same thing when I'm, um, you know, making my pick for this fight. I'm not going to tell you which way I'm going, but the durability of Calvin Cater, where Josh Emmett does have knockout power. You just said it. He can put your lights out with one shot, but the durability of Calvin Cater has really been incredible to watch. The guy can really walk through a lot. As a coach, in your opinion, is that just one of those God-given things you can't teach? the ability to walk through fire? I do think ability to take a punch can, you know, there's a certain tolerance that other, that certain people are just born with and that, you know, they're harder to hit that off switch. I do think there's that, but I also think like Calvin's got really good eyes. You know, there's not a lot of punches that come to him that he doesn't see. And as you know, you're spot, like the punch that you don't see is the one that kind of hurts you, you know? So if you're right. always, you got your eyes in the right place and you, you know, your triggers are good and you have good, you know, good defense. Like, even if you get hit and you see it coming, it's a lot easier to, to handle and absorb than it is the shots that you don't see coming. Um, but, uh, so I think that's what really, you know, kind of sets Calvin up, you know, for having such a, you know, we talk about having a good chin. It's, it's just that he's, he's seeing everything that's coming. You know, he's not out of position for the most part. He has good footwork. He has good defense. He does get hit. But, like, generally anything gets hit by, he sees coming. So I think that gives him a big advantage over someone like, Maybe Emmett, where Emmett's just a – he sprints, man. Like, when he explodes, he's throwing fireballs at you, and, and if they land, you're, you're going to get hurt. But that leads to him being out of position at times and then getting hit with 
with punches, well, his, he's not thinking about defense. He's thinking about his offense. And the next thing you know, he gets caught. And that seems to where, if you look at his fights, he kind of gets caught after his offense, his defense is a little lacking. And then he gets kind of surprised with some shots. You know, E.J. Rock right. in the second round of that fight. Stevens got him. So. All right. So before I make my prediction later on in the show, what is your prediction for this weekend? Calvin Cater, Josh Emmett, hit me. I, you know, I think like second, third round TKO. I, I think Calvin, you know, there's going to be some fire to go through. We have to kind of get in the, the eye of that storm, but I do think we're going to be able to absorb his uh, flurry, and then we're going to start getting a good read on him, and then you're going to see Calvin's technical boxing is going to outclass the the, the bombs that, that Emmett, the explosive bombs that's coming from Emmett. We shall see, man. It's going to be a great fight. I'm really looking forward to it. Best of luck to Calvin Cater, Coach. Uh, Tyson Chartier, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thanks, guys. Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. I'm looking right now at CNN.com. Vince McMahon steps down as WWE CEO following hush money allegations. This broke uh, at the Wall Street Journal. If you didn't see the original article. Um, The one I'm looking at now from CNN, WWE boss Vince McMahon has agreed to step back from his responsibilities as chairman and CEO. While the wrestling company's board investigates him for alleged misconduct. In the meantime, his daughter Stephanie McMahon will serve as interim CEO and interim chairwoman, the WWE said in a statement Friday. Now, the important part for fans and for people who actually work in the company, um, McMahon won't completely disappear from the company. He will retain his role related to WWE's creative content while the investigation is ongoing and will appear as a character during wrestling matches. The company tweeted Friday that McMahon would appear on the company's Friday night wrestling showcase, SmackDown, which airs on Friday. He will be there apparently tonight, uh, 8 p.m., and I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to say. I have no idea. So let's peel back the curtain a little bit. Let's have some fun with that. KOB, what did you say right before we went on air? It's going to be fun to hear me talk about this, right? It's going to be fun to yeah. see what I can do with this, right? Because I work for them. That's my boss, right? I said, c- coming back to Jimmy Smith getting fired from WWE. <laughs> exactly. So here's the fun part. I'm not an executive there. I have no idea what's going on any more than any other fan does. The, the issue, according to the Wall Street Journal, they reported Thursday that McMahon paid a secret $3 million settlement to a former employee he allegedly had an affair with. Separation agreement, which was reportedly made in January, prevents the former unnamed employee from discussing her relationship with Mr. McMahon or disparaging him. Right? So, they are launching an investigation. Doing that with an employee is a business thing that is taken very seriously. So, I'm not an executive at the WWE. And that is what is going to get revealed by an outside investigation. So what happens is they hired an outside law firm. It was named in the uh, Wall Street Journal article. It's not named here, the exact the, the, the firm they hired to do the investigation. 
So what they're going to do is they're going to check everything out. And what will get exposed over the next couple months in investigations like this, typically, is what is the executive culture at the WWE? That's what we're going to find out. The good thing is about me and my job is I don't know because I'm not an executive. One thing you have to know about me, work-wise, is I do my job, I take my headset off, and I go home. I'm very good at that. KOB, you can back me up as a producer. Am I not? Right? To an annoying degree. To, a, like, an annoying degree. Jimmy, retweet the show tweet. Okay, I got it. Jimmy, do this. Okay, cool. Doesn't occur to me. I'm off the clock. I'm done working. Headset's off. Okay? So, I'm going to break something down for you. The people who haven't worked in a company like... WWE, UFC, Bellator, whatever. Any big, like, sports slash sports entertainment company. The level number one are the guys in black shirts and black hats who actually make things function in the show. Right? They start at 6 in the morning on show day. They leave at midnight. They work unbelievable hours. But when my headset goes wrong and I can't hear something, I point to my headset and go, hey, and I turn to this guy named Frosty. That's his name. It's a nickname, of course. He sits next to me, he's in a black shirt and a black hat, and he fixes my headset during the commercial and puts it back on my head. Boop. The people who carry the cameras, who work the pyro, who work the lights, the black clothes people who actually do the functional work of making the show happen. That is level one. Then there are producers, there are travel people, they are logistics people, there are coordinators. They wear suits... And they make sure a show functions somewhat on the creative side, okay? That the superstars get there and then back to their hotel and they make the scripts and they make sure they write them and blah, 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 and all this stuff. They make sure the match functions and the show functions. On that level, maybe a little bit higher, however you want to say it, is talent. Talent is a catch-all term for anybody on television. Me, Corey Graves, Byron Saxton. And in the case of the WWE, the actual superstars themselves. We're in a slightly different category. They wrestle, I don't. But we're all on camera. When they say talent, they could mean anybody who's on camera, on television. Okay? You get above that, and it is executives. That means in the production meeting, the people who sit next to Vince McMahon. Two places you can be in a production meeting. You can sit next to Vince McMahon. You can sit across from Vince McMahon. I am one of the people that sits across from Vince McMahon. All the producers, the commentators, tell that we all sit on one side, and they go over the matches. People are sitting next to Vince, and people are sitting across from Vince. What is going to get investigated over the next couple months is the culture and the communication between the people who sit next to Vince McMahon. That is what is going to get looked at. Why? A culture is hard to hide. You can hide... An act. You can do something and you make a mistake and you can make amends for that mistake and all these things, you can do that. It's what is going on communication-wise behind the scenes. That's what this investigation is going to be looking at. They're going to be looking at the executive culture of the WWE. Uh, The good news from my perspective is I have spent five minutes total talking to any executive on WWE. They don't really have any reason to talk to me. And it's one of those things where people ask me all the time for, you know, when I was with the UFC, oh, it's Dana Whitelight. How should I know? I don't, I never spoke to Dana White. I talked to him to a grand, for a grand total of five minutes in the whole year I was there. He doesn't have any reason to talk to me. 
Have I heard much more from Vince McMahon? Yeah, but it's all been about, hey, uh, Money in the Bank is this date, da-da-da-da-da. Be sure to say about this, this, and that. It's all about the nuts and bolts of the show. It's never, hey, let's hang out and get something to eat. It doesn't work that way, folks. I never did that with anybody. Not Dana White, not Scott Coker. Um, There's a real line in sports and sports entertainment between the people sitting at the top, the executives, and the people doing their job in a particular place. So each one of those levels I just talked about, from the people who make the show work, the, the, the functional tech people, on-air talent, producers, and then executives, there's a culture to each one of these levels. Because all those people hang out and communicate with one another. The, 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 the black shirt people all hang out and talk and da-da-da, and I talk to them too as well. Then there's the on-air talent. We all interact in our own way. All the producers interact in their own way. And then all the executives interact in their own way. And those lines don't always, in fact, they often don't, bleed over into one another. So I honestly don't know how this communication, John Laurinaitis is another guy who's obviously been named in this article that may be involved in this or whatever. Hey, nice guy in the two times I've spoken to him and shook his hand and went, hey, how you doing? Bruce Pritchard, nice guy. The handful of times I've had to speak to Bruce Pritchard about something and ask him a question, that a really nice guy. All right, he's on Dark Side of the Ring. You know, if you've seen him talk, nice dude. But I don't know how it works. I'm not on the private jet. I'm not doing any of that stuff. So as a an employee slash fan, I'm really curious to watch tonight's SmackDown. I'm really curious to see what's going on. Because we're not going to see what's going on for a couple months until this investigation is, is completed. And once they look, once you hire an outside investigator, someone not part of the company, which they did, they, they hired an outside law firm. Once again, I don't think it's named in this article. It was named in the Wall Street Journal article. Uh, it's up to them to do their due diligence. They don't want to do a sloppy job because it reflects on them. So we'll see what comes out. And we'll see exactly how it works at the executive level of the WWE. That is going to be under a lot of scrutiny over the next couple months. Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. One of the stories we've been talking about over the last couple of days has been the, I, I don't want to say surprise because he has been out for a while, but a little bit surprising, the retirement and the disappointment of that it has brought. I mean, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, 145-pounder that I really thought we might be seeing the future of the division when we first saw him. I want some insight into his mentality and what happened leading up to this. So, MMA coach Mark Henry, former coach of Zabit Magomed Sharapov, joining us now. How you doing, Mark? Good. How you doing, guys? Doing well, man. Doing well. So, where I want to start with is when I first saw Zabit, as I just said, I thought I was looking at the future 
uh, of the featherweight division. The guy was six foot one, explosive, fast, accurate, powerful. He seemed to have every gift necessary to be a standout mixed martial artist. Was I correct in that assessment of of, of his gifts? Um, you're yes and no. No, in the fact Please. that he's only really shown about ten percent of what we you know what we see daily. So. What people see, you know, I saw him in those six fights or in his uh, previous fights before UFC. I mean, the, the kid has so much more that he could do. So, uh, you know, what has blown people away? There was, you know, there's a lot more that, that he's capable of doing that. You don't even believe the human body is capable of doing, but only Zabi could do. So the retirement itself, uh, how much of it was a surprise? How much was known about it? Um as far as, as as you, the coaching staff, was concerned, like was this a long time coming? Were you aware? Well, well you, you know, he hasn't fought in a while. And, yeah. um, you know, so it's not a surprise because he hasn't fought, you know, in a little bit. So it wasn't a surprise on that end. But, you know, people retire. You, you know, you never know if someone comes back, if they have a change of heart or, you know, health gets, you know, changes or, you know, so I, I would definitely never close the door on, on anybody. But, um you know, Zabit's a, Zabit's a definitely different dude, man. And, and uh, you know, I was always so proud of him. And, um, you know, and amazing. he's like, yeah, fun. Like, he'll, he'll say things, you know, that everybody will sit around and listen. Because, you know, he's very he's a very unique guy. Uh, you know, has his own aura about him. And, um, you know, like, there's I, the thing that I love about Zabit, there's so many more things that are that he realized that are important than just fighting, you know. And I'm so happy that he you know you got like Khabib knows that he knows that you know the um you know a lot of some different guys uh what was his name the 170 pound guy that almost retired from uh uh Czechoslovakia or not I'm sorry um from where uh I don't know I don't know the 170 pound that's really good yeah correct but those type of guys you've heard them say you know that they'll retire that it doesn't bother them you know and, and I really look up to those guys that you know, they, they know there's bigger things in life than just fighting, you know, and I admire them for that. Um, so was it, uh, you know, he, he said that he had, um, he said that he had some injuries that kept him out for a while, but it was that he came back and just wasn't, didn't, didn't have that fire anymore mentally. Do you think it was more the mental side than the physical side at the end? I think it's just a, a variety of things, you know, the on and off again on his last fight, you know, um, you know, um, his health, you know, which he, he needs to fix something. And, you know, just he's been doing this since he was a little kid, like going to school. Like, you know, that was what he did every day, you know, since he was little. So I think there's just uh, many things, you know, his his, uh, his religion. I just think there's a whole variety of different things altogether. Money, you know, it's a, I think if you don't make money that, uh, you know, John Jones or, or that um, Connor's making. I don't think it's worth it for anybody, in my honest opinion. You know, to take put your body to that type of damage mentally, um, you know, with your brain and, and everything else. I just definitely don't think it's worth it. So I think there's, you know, there was a, a lot of different things. I wouldn't wouldn't just put one one into it, you know. So I'm speaking, of course, of course, to MMA coach Mark Henry, coach of uh, Zabit Magomed Sharapov. How did he first come into your gym, get on your radar? How did your relationship with him begin? Uh, my relationship was wow, years ago with Ali. Um, he came in, and, and, and just from the first day, 
you know, for me personally, it's about the connection that I have with a fighter too, you know, um, and me, him and I just hit it off from the get go, you know, laughing and, and, and you know, really uh, clicked on, on training and, and doing different things. And, you know, from day one, I, I, I thought he was a phenom and, um, uh, he was doing things that I've really never seen before. And, but, uh, Ali had, Ali had sent him over to us and, um, and it was just like from the, from the first day, you know, was a great click and a great, a perfect, a perfect fit. And at that time too, like he was sparring with, um, Edson when he was, you know, in his prime and Marlon Marias and Frankie and, uh, Eddie was champion, I think at the time. Um, you know, a lot of different guys. He had some, you know, really high caliber guys that we knew when he first started going with, you know, that we could see if he's good or not, you know, so we had a, a really good gauge because he was going with the best in the world. So, you know, we knew that he, he was really good, you know. How was he in those sessions with the best in the world, with those top guys? What was it? What did, what did he look like sparring with world champions and stuff like that? It's just amazing, you know, and we, we even brought him up, you know, I was training, uh, Chris Wyman, and I even brought him up for Algermain. He's got to spar with him, and, you know, he's a champion right now. So he's pretty much been with everyone. I mean, you know, just like I said, things that you've never seen before that, you know, it would have been nice for for to show a little bit more, um, you know, in the octagon that you just see everything. I remember we were, we were playing volleyball in my house one time, and the ball was going out of bounds, and he flipped almost, almost did like a backflipping and kicked it before it was going out of bounds, like, the things that he could just do physically or and in a split second, you know, will blow, will blow your mind. You know, it, it, it's kind of funny. I remember uh, Teddy Atlas being interviewed about Mike Tyson, and he was asked, what was the first thing that you and Customato saw when, you know, uh, Mike Tyson was introduced to you? And they said, we saw a kid who was 12 years old, 190 pounds with no fat on him. Right, we saw the raw physical ability, like like you said, where it's he could just do things other guys his age couldn't do. Period. End of sentence. Now he was molded, he was trained. We put him through the ringer and all this stuff, and made him a great fighter. But we started off with this clay that was like unbelievable. The guys had a ton of physical talent. Was Zabit one of those guys, or do you feel it was kind of like you know drilled into him from years, like you said, doing this his whole life? I think one of the main things is, you know, you could be drilled your whole life, but if you don't, you know, if you're, you know, if you're not a Ferrari, you're not a Ferrari, you know, right. The things that he's athletically able to do, you know, it doesn't matter if you did it since you were in nursery school, the day you were born, you're just not going to do them. You know, he's just, uh, you know, he's just one in a hundred million, you know, he's just a, you know, for the first day you see him, he's a phenom and, and just the wrestling was getting so much better. Um, even we were working on some defensive things that I was so excited for his next fight that he never really got to show, you know, because he would cover a little bit and his range is so great. And we got him not to uh, cover and do some other things defensively, which we were doing sparring for his last fight that would have been that I believe even got better, you know, so he never really got to show that. But just the things he could do everything like he could do it all he could do judo like you saw the uh, submission that he had that crazy submission that he had that he got Sulu by the stretch, night with yeah. the yep that Algermain and him did wind up doing on the same night you know his wrestling is top notch and was only getting better his kicks are incredible um i remember um watching one fight with um 
I forget who it was, a UFC, Clay Guida was fighting, and he did, I don't know what it's called, a donkey kick or something, when you have the guy up against the fence, and yeah. I said to be, let's try this out. I said, let's try this out. Next fight, you know, he doesn't. I remember Joe Rogan saying, I don't even know what to call that, Joe Rogan said. You know, then another time, you know, I had him hanging out by the fence, putting his hand on the fence and doing a sidekick, and he would do that the next fight. So, you know, whatever you, you know, you came up in your mind or wrote up, you know, this kid could do it, you know, and like I said, there's not many fighters that could do everything. Like, this kid could do everything. Like I have boxing tape with him with uh, professional boxers um, that he just looks incredible. You know, wrestling when he's with, uh, you know, guys that uh, wrestle for the world, you know, that, you know, he wrestles incredible. His judo's off the hook, you know. I'm not even getting into his kicks is what he, you know, grew up doing. That He could just do everything. And, and everything, you know, that you showed him, you know, he could do better than somebody that had, that had done it since birth. <laughs> uh, speaking, of course, to Mark Henry, MMA coach, what are your – I know you've been through this probably more than once, probably a, a million times. When a fighter wants to retire, what is the role of a coach in that decision? Do you feel you have any, any, any role in that decision? Yeah, I think absolutely, especially depending on your relationship. You know, mine yeah. defeats relationship – you know, is really good. And Zabit, you know, he's so respectful to his coaches. And, and, you know, and he's, and I don't look at Zabit as a fighter first. I look at him as a brother. And, you know, the things we talk about more are family and friendship and, and you know, cracking jokes than we do even fighting. So, um, you know, he's more important to me as a brother and a friend, you know, miles than, than he is as a fighter. So, you know, my advice to anybody is I'm happy. Like, I just think if you're not making, you know, like I said, what, what Connor or, or John Jones or some of the others, I, I don't think fighting's, you know, the way to go. I don't even let my son fight. My son, you know, it's a huge battle. My son and I, when he grew up, he wanted to fight. I let him do jujitsu at Ricardo's and I wouldn't even let him spar. So, you know, I just think that you live one time and, you know, the brain is delicate and, you just saw a fighter a couple of weeks ago died uh, in the you know after he got hit and died right. a day later, a few days later. You know, I just don't think it's worth it. You know, go, Frankie Edgar. I, you know, thank God his back is doing better now. He had surgery, but you know, like his back was his back and shoulders and everything and knees were like were, were shredded. You know, it's you know it's it's tough to see. You know, these guys when they have you know wife and kids and you know which the beat does. You know, and, and to say hey, you know, keep fighting, you know. Uh, what do you believe his future is in MMA? If you when you when you read his uh, his Instagram post about the retirement, uh, he says he still wants to be in MMA, still wants to give back. Do you think he has a future? He has that 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 coach's mentality to kind of pass along what he knows. Oh, absolutely, and you know, and and one of the first people that he does with is his brother, his brother Hassan. You know, he's really close with and uh, really guides him in his training and. Um, so I think as a, I think Zabit could just do anything he wants. You know, he's in a couple different business ventures right now that are doing really well. You know, that's another reason why when he first said it to me, I said, you know, definitely go for it because I knew he had some other things in business that were going great. So, uh, you know, I said, you know, you, you could do these other things and not get hit. Definitely do them, you know. And um, so he's doing well with that. So, but he could coach, he could do anything he wants, this kid. Like, he's just. You know, he's a very rare, unique human being, you know, on uh, the different things that he comes up with and the things that he says, the things that he does. 
and and his lifestyle, he's just very unique. So I believe he can do whatever he wants and and succeed and you know be the best. When you say that that fighting is hard, you don't let your son do it. Um, it it's a tough way to make a living. How does that translate as a coach? You're getting people ready to do something that you know is extremely difficult, extremely challenging, like we said, hard to make a living. How does that affect you as a coach? I'm very curious about that. It's, it's tough. Like, I remember, you know, and each person is very different. You know, like Frankie, like Frankie loves it. It's in his heart. It's in his being. You know what I'm saying? Like other guys I know that do it, but they're more Instagram fighters than even fighters. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. They don't fight until they have a fight, you know, or a guy like Frankie or Corey Anderson or Kalen Chukagan, you know, and, and a lot of those that I have, you know, they're they're in the gym right after their fight's over. You know, they, they can't help it. It's it's what they're about. So, you know, they're it's different, you know, each each person is definitely different. But I can remember even talking to Greg Jackson um years ago and saying, Man, uh, you know, and seeing like some of these guys get knocked out and you know, three, four weeks to where they're not right. And, and I remember saying to Greg, it's like, man, I just feel like sometimes I'm like peddling drugs or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, I usually see the, the normal UFC fighter is a guy, he's like 36 years old. He's been knocked out three, four straight times. His knees are banged out. Now he has a wife and two kids. And now he has to start his life all over, all over, you know? So, uh, you know, and that's probably more the norm than, than not. And, and, the UFC, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's pretty tough to, you know, when that's the reality of the sport, I believe, you know, I have to, to, to run something by you. And I want to, I want to hear your opinion about it. Um, whenever there is a controversy about a, you know, a fighter gets hit, a fighter gets takes an illegal shot and they say, can you keep going? And people ask me, Oh, why do they do that? Why do they do that? And I said, they're like addicts where, it's yeah. it's not a rational thought. They're not thinking rationally. They always want that fix, and they'll. You might as well be asking a junkie if they want to hit. Can you keep going? Yeah, I can keep. Uh, ab- going. Absolutely. Is that? It, 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 do you agree with that? A hundred percent. I when I was boxing, um, you know, every I'd watch a boxing match on TV, and I got, and, you know, I'd be like, oh man, I just score that guy, you know, and now he's doing good. I just do it. I'd be back in the gym, this, you know, the next day. Like, I didn't watch boxing for two years to want to stop, not keep going back to boxing. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I think, it, just like you said, it, it's just, it's a drug, you know, and, and a lot of people are born with it, you know, and it's just, you know, what makes them go. That's why I think, you know, for some, for me, it was coaching helped out that I, you know, that I was still able to, um, you know, semi-compete, you know, and, and walk into, like, Madison Square Garden with a crowd, and, you know, you can't buy that, you know, that, that uh, you know, that that win and a hand raise, then there's no money in the world that could buy that, and, and if that's your fix, you know, <laughs> you'll, you know, you'll do anything to get it, you know. I really appreciate you, Mark, and before I let you go, Mark Henry, coach of Zabit Magomed Sharapov, as your friend, you called him a brother. What do you want people to remember about Zabit Magomed Sharapov and his career? Well, first of all, I want to tell the truth, too. He retired because all the 145ers were paying Zabit monthly not to fight anymore in the UFC. They were afraid. So the money wow. ran out. That's, what, that's, what that, that's why he's retiring. I forgot to say that part, but that's the real part. I'm letting you know on your show. But Zabit, I just want everybody to remember, like, 
you didn't see as a fight fan, you saw nothing. You know, what you saw in greatness, you know, this kid could do so much more to me. He's a champion, you know, always in my eyes, but even more, he's always going to be a brother uh, for life to me. But everybody else, you know, you guys only saw 10% of what this kid could do. Considering what we did see, that is absolutely frightening. Mark Henry, MMA coach, really appreciate you, my man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, have a great weekend, guys. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and SiriusXM Fight Nation Program Director, Marissa Rivas. SiriusXM Podcasts.